So as you can tell by the front of your bulletin, we're continuing our study in James. And if you are flipping there, uh, well, if you would, go ahead and flip there. If you're using one of the blue provided Bibles, that's going to be on page 1011. 1011. If you're here today and you do not own a Bible, then that blue one that's on the ground, that's yours. Just consider it yours, put your name in it, take it home, and we hope that you'll be blessed by it. And if you've never read through the Gospel of John, would encourage you just to read through the Gospel of John. But today, we're not in the Gospel of John. Today, we're in the book of James. And so if you're flipping uh, in your Bible, you flip toward the back. See Philemon, Hebrews, James. And as I've tried to share some context as we looked at this book, uh, the, this book is written by Jesus' half-brother. James. The history books call him James the Just. And he was initially a doubter of Jesus' claims to divinity, Jesus claiming to be the Son of God, Jesus claiming to be divine. And then eventually, James became a firm believer, so much so that he was martyred for that faith. And now he's writing to dispersed Christians, Jewish Christians, who have been dispersed due to persecution, and he's encouraging them to hold on to the faith. But not only to hold on to the faith, but to live out their faith. And he addresses these various different themes as to what it looks like for genuine faith to be lived out. And the whole premise of the book, the whole theme of the book, is that genuine faith works. Genuine faith is not alone. Genuine faith works. It's not that the works save the faith, or save you, it's that works come after faith. Faith saves you, and works are a fruit of that faith. I said it the last couple of weeks, but I'll say it again, that the works are, are the result of a living root. A root that is dead does not produce anything. So faith being the root, true faith, genuine faith, produces works. So in the first 18 verses of chapter 1, James talked about how does genuine faith approach trials and temptations. And he, what we saw there was that uh, those with genuine faith will joyfully trust that God is using trials and temptations to bring them closer to God. And then in last, last week's uh, section, the remainder of chapter 1, we saw James approach the question of how does genuine faith approach God's word? How does genuine faith approach God's word? And it was simply put, it's just that genuine faith does what God's word says. It hears it, it receives it, it receives the implanted word, and it does, it lives in light of that, that word. And now today, as we look at the first 13 verses of chapter 2, we approach the question of how does genuine faith live amongst people? How does genuine faith approach people? And what James articulates to us is that genuine faith strives to display God's fairness to all people. Genuine faith strives to display God's fairness to all people. And friends, we need that message today just as much as they did then. Be it athletes or politicians or those who are wealthy or famous or celebrities or the successful or the well-educated, we are all prone to show favoritism, to show partiality towards a group of people that we deem to have more value than another group of people over here. And so let's read these first 13 verses in James 2, and then we will uh, just kind of start walking through it and breaking it down. So James 2, starting in verse 1, 
We read this. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become transgressors of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We recognize that we need to be shaped by it. So Lord, as we look at these 13 verses, please help me be clear. Lord, where I am faithful in articulating what your word says, please have us receive it. Lord, where I am not clear, please make me clear. God, we ask uh, that we would be a people that live in light, faithfully in light of James 2, 1 through 13. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So in your bulletin, you'll find that there are two blanks. I think, I think James has just broken this section up into two uh, subsections, so to speak. See that in verses 1 through 7 and then verses 8 through 13. The first seven verses, what James is getting at, is the problem. That's the, the blank that you have there, the problem. And then verses 8 through 13, James kindly gives us the solution. So we have the problem and the solution. So the problem, if you look right there in verse 1, we see James just stating the principle. He just gets right to the heart of it. Here's the issue. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, I I want to remind you that he is talking, again, to brothers. And he's not just using the word brothers as a friendly way to say hello to somebody. He's saying it because they are brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you are in Christ, the Son, then you are considered brothers. You are considered to be God's children because you are in God's Son. And so he is talking to brothers, to those who have faith. In fact, the word brothers is used 19 times in the book of James, which just reemphasizes the point that when James commands certain behaviors in this book, because this book is full of commands, about half of the book is commands. When James emphasizes the, the importance of these commands, he is talking to believers. He's not saying that these commands are how you acquire 
salvation. He's saying, you, brothers, you have already been saved. Therefore, the fruit of your life should look like this. This is what you should do. He's providing direction to brothers and sisters in Christ. But then we see this word partiality. And because the, I mean, the title of the sermon is partiality. So let's unpack what, what that word means. So you could say partiality, or you could say favoritism. The New American Standard or the Christian Standard Bibles, they say favoritism. One commentary put it this way. It says it literally means to receive someone according to their face and describes the essence of judging based on external appearances. To receive someone according to their face and describes the essence of judging based on external appearances. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, now, as we look at this, uh, a question that may, that may naturally pop up is, well, I thought, I thought Christians just weren't supposed to judge at all. I mean, Matthew 7 seems to indicate judge not, lest you be judged. Well, we have to look at that. Let's, if you would, actually, turn to Matthew 7. This is going to be a few, a little bit more than a few. It's going to be a little bit further back in the Gospels. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew is the first book of your New Testament. Go to Matthew 7. Now, this is where we get the idea that Christians should never judge. So let's read that. Jesus is saying, Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Remember that for later. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the problem illustrated here in Matthew 7 is that both people have something wrong with their eye. And it's hypocritical for the one to say, hey, there's something wrong with your eye, when you also have something wrong with your own eye. That's what Jesus is getting at. Hey, you have a problem with your eye. That person has a problem with their eye. It's hypocritical for you to say, hey, you've got an issue with your eye when, when you yourself have an even larger issue with your own eye. It's hypocritical judgment that Jesus is condemning here, that Jesus is denouncing, not judgment altogether. So the question is, how then are we to judge? Well, Jesus tells us in John 7, so you see Matthew 7, where he's condemning hypocritical judgment. Now John 7, verse 24, Jesus gives us the standard that we're supposed to use. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And so we're called to make judgments, but we're called to make right judgments, not hypocritical judgments. And James, here in James 2, is advocating for the same thing that Jesus was advocating for. We see that Jesus was advocating for this. We also see that it was advocated for in the Old Covenant. You don't have to turn there, but Deuteronomy 1, in verses 16 and 17, Moses writes, And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers, and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small 
and the great alike. Leviticus 19 says, You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. And so look, James here isn't advocating for something new. We've always, friends, been prone to attribute greater value to some rather than others, to some group of people, be it based on social status, be it based on ethnicity, be it based on abilities, whatever it is, we've been prone to attribute greater value to one group rather than another group. And all throughout Scripture, we see God is not pleased with partial judgment. He's pleased with righteous judgment. God is just. And he's never been pleased with outward partiality because that is injustice. But to make his point, James continues. He he provides a real-life example. Look at me in verse 2. He says, look, if if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? and become judges with evil thoughts. So look, notice, notice what's happening here. Two men walk in. Where Christians are gathering, two men walk in. One is rich, one is wealthy, wears fine clothing. One is poor, one is wearing shabby clothing. And some Christians had already, before knowing anything about them, attributed different values to them based on the way they looked. Now the problem is that both of those men, the rich man and the poor man, enter into that assembly, both being equally made in the image of God, both being equally called to obey God's commands, and both heading to a judgment where they will be equally judged by God's standard, not the standard that we create for ourselves. And so the first problem when we show partiality is that we're making wrong judgments. We're, we're judging based off our own standard rather than God's standard. And the second problem is that when we do that, so the first problem is that they're wrong judgments. The second problem is that we're elevating our own standard above God's. So we're saying, I know better than you, God. This is a better way to judge. So it's not only that we're making wrong judgments, but we're also arrogantly elevating our own standard above God's. One commentary put it this way. It said, when we attempt to discern people's value based on external features, we not only try to usurp God's role as judge, but we fail miserably in the process. So now, we go to the reason why this is offensive to God. And there's at least two reasons that the text provides why this is offensive for God. So the first one is that because God has a heart for the poor. He has a heart for the poor. We see it all throughout Scripture. James says it right here. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Proverbs 14 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. Proverbs 19, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. Proverbs 29, A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. Proverbs 21, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. I think Galatians 2, when Paul's talking about after his conversion, he went to the apostles and they took a while to affirm him, but then after they finally do affirm him, he says, uh, after, after writing about how they did affirm him, he then says in Galatians 2.10, 
Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. Now, why? Why is God uh, inclined toward the poor? Why does he have a heart for the poor? It's because the poor are the ones who recognize their need more readily than those who have. Now, does that mean that all the poor are automatically brought into God's kingdom just because they're poor? Does that mean they're automatically brought in? No, it doesn't. But the poor have a unique awareness that they are in need, that they're in a position of need, that they don't have many things, nor do they have the means to acquire the things that they want. Which, then, friends, makes it easier for them to accept the good news of the gospel. This is why in in the Beatitudes, we read that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the first Beatitude. Because the poor in spirit recognize that they don't have a right standing with God, and they more easily understand, I need something to make me right with God. I'm, I'm poor in spirit. I don't have, nor do I have the means to have. I don't have this right relationship with God that I desire, but I also don't have the means to, to get this right relationship with God. I need, to, I need somebody else to act on my behalf. God has a heart for the poor. The poor are extra aware that they're needy, and it's the needy, friends, it's the needy who ask for help. So to dishonor the needy or to dishonor the poor is an offense to God. So the first reason why, why showing partiality towards the rich over the poor is offensive to God that we read here is because God does have a heart for the poor. It's, it says in verse 5, it's those who are poor whose God has chosen to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. But then the second reason is because it breeds injustice. Second part of verse 6, James points out, he says, look, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And so look, it was the rich here that were mistreating God's people. It was the rich who were rejecting Christ and the gospel, yet the Christians who were being mistreated by the rich who saw the name of Christ being blasphemed by the rich, when a rich man walks in, they say, they say, you deserve favor. Come over here. Sit in a nice place. They were rewarding. They were giving special privilege to those who did not deserve that special privilege. It was, it was an injustice. But that's what they were doing. And to be honest, you can probably understand why they were doing that. Remember, these are persecuted Christians. And those who were behind their persecution were often those who were wealthy, those who had power in society. And so when, when one of them comes into their assembly, they probably think, you know, that there's an opportunity here for us to gain some favor with them, for them to maybe take it a little easy on us. So let's get them here in a nice spot. This person is a person of, of, of sway, a person who has power to change our circumstances. Friends, we're called to be a reflection of God's justice to a world full of injustice. Notice something that James does not say here. He does not say, give the poor special privilege. He doesn't say, give the poor a leg up. And he doesn't say, being rich is sinful. 
But James is frustrated because one group of people is deemed to be more valuable than another group of people based on our own standards, not God's standard. And when we elevate our own standards, friends, that breeds injustice. And look, just just to be extra clear, God's not saying here that all partiality is wrong. He's not saying all partiality is wrong. In fact, when I go to the grocery store, I'm grocery shopping for my family. I have a responsibility to provide for my family. If we couldn't afford food because I spent all of our money feeding the neighbors, then I would actually be in sin. First Timothy 5.8, he's speaking to families. He says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So we have a priority to provide for our families. Additionally, friends, I'm partial toward other Christians. So if I'm too busy helping non-Christians that I never get to help my brothers and sisters in Christ, then I am actually committing sin. Galatians 6.10. Paul's talking to Christians and he says to them, as we have opportunity, let us, let us do good to everyone. So we, all, we are called to do good to everyone. Then he continues, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now the difference between, between that and our partiality is that our partiality, our, our discrimination, our favoritism is based on our own standards. But right here, what God says is based off of his commands. Do you see the difference there? When we elevate our own standards and show favoritism based off our own standards, that's sinful. But when we keep things in their proper order the way God has prescribed, then that is godly. We are called to do good to all people, but especially to those who are Christians. We are called to love our neighbors, but we cannot neglect those of our own household, those who are of our own family. So partiality or favoritism based on our own standard, friends, is contrary to God's justice. We're all measured against the same standard, God's word or God's law. We're all measured against that standard. And we've all fallen woefully short of that standard which means all of us, without exception, without partiality, are condemned by God's law. We're in need of someone to save us from that condemnation, which leads us to the solution in verses 8 through 13. So look with me in verse, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So the solution is to fulfill the royal law. Notice the contrast between verse 8 and verse 9. Verse 8, fulfill the royal law. That's, that's good. That, he says you're doing well. Verse 9, if you show partiality, that's bad. Committing sin. And so clearly, friends, it's better to fulfill the royal law. That's, that's what James is getting at. James, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is saying it's better for you to fulfill the royal law, to hold up God's law. Now the question is, what is the royal law? Now the royal law is, is just the king's law. It's King Jesus' law, which he summarized for us in Matthew 22. Matthew 22, in verse 37, starting there, Jesus is talking to a lawyer, and he says... You shall love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he concludes by saying, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So all of God's law can be summarized by love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so when you make judgments or when you make, make, uh, place values on people based on your own standard, your own law, rather than God's law and God's standard, then you fail to love your neighbor as yourself. When you make judgments based on your own law or standards, rather than God's law, you fail to love your neighbor as yourself. So if you, if you hop in your car after, after church today, you hop on 270, and you see that the speed limit sign is 65, and you set your cruise control to 65, and you're driving down, and you're pulled over by a state patrolman, and he pulls you over because he says you're speeding. You might be a little bit confused because you said, sir, the, the sign said 65 miles per hour. And he might acknowledge and say, yeah, that sign back there it did say 65. You're right about that. However, I maintain a speed limit on 270 of 35. You were going well above 35. And so then he gives you a ticket and sends you on your way. You would be frustrated because deep down, we all want an outside law that is unchanging so that we know how it is we are to live. We don't want laws to be imposed on us that are simply based on each individual standard. To do that is to not love your neighbor as yourself. We all want that unchanging standard. And the good news, friends, is that God has provided that unchanging law. He's provided it for our good. The bad news is that we've all broken it countless times. And the thing is, that if you break it just once, then it's equivalent to breaking the entire thing. Look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law, the whole law, he says, whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So as a kid, I had reckless streaks and there was a time, it had to have been within like a year or two, I broke three windows at our house. Three windows and one sliding glass door. Whether it was with a golf ball or a baseball or a BB gun, twice. And look, if you looked at those windows or that sliding glass door, you, the, the argument, and let me be the one to make it, the argument could be made that the whole thing wasn't broken. You look at the majority of that window, and it's still fine. You look at the majority of that sliding glass door, and it still slides, and there's still plenty of glass there. <laughs> but I broke the window. I broke the sliding glass door. And look, friends, God's law is a complete unit. So maybe you know someone. Maybe, maybe you might not agree that, that you're just as equal of breaking God's law as somebody else because you know somebody, you can think of somebody that is worse than you. I mean, after all, you're at church, right? 
the person you have in your head, maybe they'd never go to church. You're here. But friends, the reality is you're both equally classified as lawbreaker, as guilty, as transgressor. And there are only two categories in God's eyes. There's the righteous and there's lawbreaker or sinner. Do you, see, do, you, do you see how that totally levels the playing field? How that totally levels our standing? Because none of us are in the camp of righteous. Because we've all broken God's law in at least one place. Which means we are all equally considered transgressors. The rich man and the poor man are equally lawbreakers. The master and the slave are equally lawbreakers. The president of the United States and a convicted felon are equally guilty before God. Black and white, Jew and Gentile, well-educated and the uneducated, the weak and the strong, the healthy and the sick, the athlete and the crippled, all have disobeyed God's commands at one point or another. Therefore, all, without distinction, are equally guilty before God and are equally in need of a savior. And so the question is, what should we do? And James answers that for us in verse 12. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so what does James say to do? He says, keep the future in mind. Look, all those who have faith in Christ will stand before the judge, but we will be set free. We will be, be judged according to the law, but the law will be, a, for us, it will be a law of liberty, a law of freedom, a law that sets free. Therefore, a prominent mark of Christians is that they are quick to uphold justice, to uphold what is true, God's standard of true, and they are also quick to show mercy because we've received mercy. To show favoritism or partiality is actually to withhold mercy. Does that make sense? To, to show favoritism, to show partiality is to withhold mercy. Follow me here. If we on one hand, hold up God's standard. If we hold up God's law and we make judgments based off God's law, then what we realize as we look at God's law and as others are, are made aware of what God has said, what we all realize is that we are guilty and we need saving. We need mercy. And the good news is that God has provided that mercy in Christ. So when we hold up God's standards, we see clearly that we've fallen short of it, but we also are reminded that God has provided mercy through Jesus Christ. But when we do away with God's standard and we hold up our own, our own standard, then what we do is we withhold the good news of the gospel, the good news of mercy that God has provided through Christ because we're holding up our own value system and every individual person is holding up their own value system. And if we don't see our need for mercy because we're holding up our own value system rather than God's, then the good news of God's mercy is going to fall on deaf ears. 
So by refusing to make right judgments based off God's law, we are actually withholding his mercy. So the solution, friends, is to live in light of God's final judgment, that we're all going to be judged in light of God's law. But for the Christian who's placed their faith in Christ, they will, for, for them, that law will be a law of liberty. It'll be freedom. Not because they've fulfilled the law, but because they've placed their faith in the one who has. Only one has ever fulfilled the law, the God-man, Christ Jesus. And so Christian, we're to make right judgments. We're to show no partiality, rich or poor, healthy or sick. We're to make judgments based off of God's standard, God's law, God's word. And by basing your judgment on that, rather than your own standard, you pave the way for mercy to be received. And so the question this morning is, what ways are you prone to be partial? What ways are you prone to show favoritism? Maybe it's who you're willing to learn from. Only those who look a certain way, only those who have certain experiences, only those who have certain degrees. Who are you willing to learn from? Maybe if you're an employer or you're part of the hiring process, who are you willing to hire? I've worked in corporate America. I I recognize the, the desire to push DEI. Friends, DEI is incompatible with God's law because it values someone based on external standards rather than God's standard. Are you showing partiality based on worldly standards when it comes to your hiring practices? Or are you truly seeking to hire the best person for the job? I mean, you can see how that plays out not only with, with hiring, but also with school admissions, things like that. I mean, we're a culture that is, that is obsessed with just slamming our own standards for what is valuable and trying to impose that rather than look to what God says is valuable. Church, when the service is done and you, and you are looking for somebody to talk to, are you avoiding some people for reasons that God wouldn't approve of? Because maybe they don't share the same interests as you. Maybe they don't look like you. If you're a non-Christian here, first off, thank you for being here. But perhaps you don't think you need Jesus because you're not that bad of a person. I just want to remind you that you are just as guilty of transgressing God's law as any other person here or any other person outside of here. You are just as as responsible for your transgression against God's commands, and so therefore you are just as guilty of your sin, of breaking God's law. You are no better, you're no worse. You are a sinner in need of grace, in need of mercy. Do you hate racism? Our society hates racism seems to be hyper-focused on racism, and I get that. But friends, God hates racism. Those are judging values of people based off of external standards that we've made on our own. God hates racism. Do you hate discrimination? God too. He does as well. Are you disgusted by prejudice? So is God. Friends, we are to make right judgments based off of God's standard. God's standard is his word. 
We see that each person is equally made in the image of God, and each person is equally guilty. Look, genuine faith strives to display God's fairness to all people. And look, if there was anybody who was treated unfairly, it was Christ who did no wrong, yet was beaten and crucified for the sins of his people. And look, we all stand guilty before God. No one has a leg up on another. Billy Graham, the, the famous evangelist, he would always say that, that the ground before the cross is level ground. So whether you've been a relatively good person or whether you have been a, a terrible person, we are all equally in need of God's mercy. Just as all, without partiality, stand guilty as transgressors of God's law, so also the promise of salvation is extended to all and is available to all who receive it. One commentator put it this way. He said, God has renounced all partiality and made one way of salvation for all men alike. God has renounced all partiality and made one way of salvation for all men alike. And he says that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He says there's therefore now no condemnation for all who are in Christ Jesus. And so without, without partiality, we all stand guilty in need of a Savior. And without partiality, whoever comes will be saved. Without partiality, there is no condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus, regardless of what your past is. If you place your faith in Christ, if you trust him to remove your sin, if you trust him as your master, then there is no condemnation for you. God shows no partiality in that. That's not for everybody but you because you're particularly bad. God shows no partiality. And friends, if we are going to live in light of the good news of the gospel, then we too should show God's fairness to all people. Let's pray. Father, uh, Lord, we confess that we are a partial people, that we have shown favoritism in ways that you do not approve of. Lord, help us. Help us to treat others the way we would want to be treated. Lord, you say that is part of the great commandment. Lord, help us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. God, we pray that we would be an equitable people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.